Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure and honor to be opening God's Word with you this morning, whether that is in person or whether that is via the World Wide Web. And today we will be opening to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. As we come down the home stretch of chapter 3, and really down the home stretch of the first part in the book of Ephesians. Our text today serves somewhat as a transition from part one in Ephesians into part two. Now we have seen thus far in part one of Ephesians chapters one through three that these chapters have dealt with specifically who we as Christians, who we are in Jesus Christ. These chapters have noted that we were predestined, we were chosen, we were adopted. They have noted that we were redeemed and forgiven and united. They have noted that we were sealed and guaranteed an eternal inheritance. No longer are we dead in our sin and trespasses, but by grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are alive in Christ. We are one with Christ. We have peace with God and we have peace with each other. And because of that, in part 2 of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, they deal with how we as Christians are to walk as Christians, or to live out our identity in Jesus Christ. Now if you remember way back to chapter 1, in which we looked at in January, Paul prayed that the readers of this letter in verses 17 and 18 may receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that they may know you and the hope to which he has called you. Tony Miranda shared that in essence, Paul prayed here in light of chapters 1 and 3. That Christians here would understand who they are in Christ and the eternal hope that they have in Jesus Christ. But today we see Paul pray in light of chapters 4 through 6, or in light of how Christians are to now walk in Jesus Christ. So in verse 16 he prays that they may be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit for this task. Because God he has power, unfathomable, unknowable, infinite amounts of power. Now, you might not know this, but Sherlock Holmes and Watson, they were big campers. And on one camping trip of theirs in the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes nudged Watson awake and said to him, Watson, look up and tell me what you see. So Watson replied, I see millions of stars, my dear Holmes. So Sherlock replied, and what do you infer from these stars? Well, a number of things, Watson said. Astronomically, I observe that there are millions of galaxies and billions of stars and planets. Meteorologically, I expect the weather will be fine and clear tomorrow. And theologically, I see that God must be all-powerful in creating the vastness of the universe. 
What about you, Holmes? What do you infer? To which Sherlock Holmes replied, Watson, someone has stolen our tent. Now it's good to read that Watson was at least sound in his theology concerning our omnipotent God, which I hope you are as well, despite his lack of awareness. Which brings us to our thesis statement this morning for the sermon. Our thesis statement is this, Christian, pray humbly before your omnipotent, your all-powerful God, for he empowers his children to know his love and to live a life filled with his fullness. I'll say it one more time. Our thesis statement this morning is this, Christian, pray humbly before your omnipotent, your all-powerful God. For he empowers his children to know his love and to live a life filled with his fullness. Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 3, and we will be in verses 14 through 19. And even from home this morning, Faith Bible Fellowship Church, lovingly let me encourage you to open up your Bibles this morning and follow along. Again, we are in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, and the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word this morning with these dear saints at Faith Bible Fellowship Church. Lord, I pray for peace for them as they dive into your word this morning. Lord, that they may grow in their power and their strength to comprehend the love that they have for you and the love that you have given us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that even through this season, our faith and our trust in you be strengthened, knowing that you are God, you are good, and you are strengthening our inner being so that we can bring glory to you and display your fullness to the world. Father, I pray we step into that boldly. Father, I pray that you help me this morning send your spirit Help my lisping, stammering, sinful tongue to share faithfully, clearly, and truly your word this morning to this dear flock. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning is this, point number one. Christian, pray humbly before your omnipotent God. Again, point number one, Christian, pray humbly before your omnipotent God. Verses 14 and 15. 
The text reads, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Well, it has been 13 verses, church, but Paul has finally picked up his prayer for these Ephesian readers in which he started all the way back in verse 1. And here in verse 14, he picks up his prayer by saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now you don't need to be a theologian to figure out the tone in which Paul is praying or the tone in which Paul is writing here. You simply need to note his posture before God Almighty. And you can quickly figure out his tone is one of overwhelmed humility and potentially a bit of desperation for his readers that they would feel this same way. And yes, just as we read last week in verse 12, that as the children of God, we can see God as Father, and with boldness and with confidence, we can have access to Him. That is still true. But brother Christian, sister Christian, we have all been here where Paul is at emotionally, when we are at a point pleading with God to move. When we know that there is only one with the sovereign power. There is only one in the universe with the power to save our father's life when he is sick. There is only one with the power to pull us out of the grips of depression. That there is only one with the power to call his children into eternal salvation. And when you know there is only one with almighty power and you are desperate for him, that you are desperate for God to act and to move, how natural it is to humbly drop to your knees and cry out, Abba, Father, help. Father, in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Father, who is the ruler and head over all, help, Paul cries. And this seems to be Paul's intense, emotional, desperate, humble, reverent position before God as he prays for these dear Christians. And it is a position of humble and anguished desperation. A position before God for his people that many elders, many shepherds, many pastors throughout the history have taken as well. In Henry Fish's book, Handbook of Revivals, he writes of the Scottish reformer named John Knox, who was often in such agony for the people of his country that he could not sleep. He passionately would pray, O Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Knox was a man of such great prayer that Queen Bloody Mary herself said she feared his prayers more than all of the armies of Europe. Frank Feeman said that kneeling here adds to the pathos, to the emotions that are already present from Paul's references to his imprisonment and to his sufferings. Paul's prayers for his readers here are deeply heartfelt. Why? 
because Paul genuinely loved these people. He wanted what was best for these people, and Paul knew the love of the Father and the power, the sovereign power of the Father. Thus he humbly and desperately petitions his good heavenly Father to richly give good gifts here to his children, something the Father loves to do. In Matthew 7, 11, it says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And what does Paul ask for? What does Paul humbly and desperately and intensely pray for? This brings us to point number two this morning. He prays, church. Point number two. Pray that God may empower his church to know his love and to live filled with his fullness. Point number two. Pray that God may empower his church to know his love and to live filled with his fullness. Verses 16 through 19 which says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now there isn't much consensus here in terms of how many things Paul is asking God or petitioning God for here for his readers. Some scholars say that it's just one or two things, mainly power and love. And the rest of the desires that we read here in verses 16 through 19 are just manifestations or fruits of these petitions. Whereas some scholars promote the idea that Paul is making four or five petitions to God for his readers. But I like Warren Wispy's thought on the matter, where he says that these requests, these prayers, these petitions, they are just like parts of of one telescope that you stretch out one by one, one request, one petition, it leads to another. Thus I see it more here as one request from Paul simply leading to another. Thus we will begin with the first part of Paul's prayer and really the main idea of what Paul desires for his readers. Verse 16. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That God would freely give according to his infinite, according to his inexhaustible riches, the power that only comes via the Holy Spirit so that our inner being be strengthened. Inner being here means our spirit. That is Paul's prayer here, that our inner being, our spirit, may be given power by the Holy Spirit so that we may be strong. Thus, let me lovingly ask you at this time to consider your prayers over the last three days. How many of them 
Or what percentage of them had to do with you physically? What percentage of them had to do with your health or your profession or your personal endeavors? Praying for a new job, praying to keep your job, praying for better grades, praying for this virus to go away. Now please note here, I am not saying that this is bad. And in fact, I want to encourage you to continue to do so, as these are good things to pray for. But what I am trying to bring to light is that so often in our prayer lives, brother Christian, sister Christian, we only focus on our physical needs. And we neglect our spiritual being. We neglect our spiritual health. We neglect to pray that we may trust further in God in the midst of the coronavirus. We neglect to pray that we may hold every thought captive to the Lord in the midst of the media onslaught we face. We neglect to pray that we may give thanks in all circumstances, for that is the will of God. Paul's chief concern here is not for the physical well-being of his readers. Now, make no mistake, he cared about the physical well-being of his readers, but he cared more about their souls because that impacted them through eternity. And this is not just a Pauline concern. The inner being was and is Jesus Christ's main concern as well. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, it says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What good does it do for a person to be completely healthy and wealthy and happy and physically fit, but for their inner being to be poor and unresponsive and ultimately dead? The answer does absolutely nothing for them. Listen to Jesus' interaction with the paralytic in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. It says, On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus. And when he, Jesus, saw them and he saw their faith, he said to them, what did he say? What were Jesus' immediate concerns? What did Jesus instantly do here? Did he say first to pick up your bed and go home? You are physically healed? No. He'll get to that later. Initially, he said to them, Man, your sins are forgiven. And I often wonder what the initial thoughts of the paralytic and his friends were here. Like they did all this work, he got lowered through the top of the roof. I mean, what did it take to get him up there? And finally, they get him before Jesus to be physically healed. And initially, Jesus gives him something infinitely greater. He heals him spiritually first, and then he gets to his physical needs. Thus, if that is Christ's chief concern, 
If that is Paul's chief concern, then it must be our chief concern as well. We must pray our inner spirit, church, be healed and be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul begins to build here on his first petition. He wants them to re receive power to be strengthened in their inner being. So, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So, Christ may dwell in your hearts, verse 17. And dwell here, it is not talking about our regeneration experience. What Paul means when he says dwell here, he's speaking about our lives in Christ. He's speaking about growing in Jesus Christ. He's speaking about our sanctification. You see, the Greek word here that we get the word dwell for, it doesn't mean to live or to remain for a short period of time but instead it means to settle in or to be established in permanently or to house permanently. Paul wants his readers, he wants their inner beings, he wants their spirits to be strengthened so Christ completely and permanently reigns over every aspect of their lives as Lord. You see, as Christians, we too often love to put things before Jesus Christ in our lives. We love to put our work before Christ, social media before Christ, our hobbies before Christ, money before Christ, our projects, Netflix before Jesus Christ. And then Christ can just slowly fade at times into the background of our lives. David Burgess noted that in the Berlin Art Gallery... There once hung an unfinished picture of King Frederick the Great talking to his generals. But there was a small bare patch in the center of the picture where a charcoal sketch indicated the artist's intentions. He had focused, or he had painted in all the generals first, but he had left the king to last. That is so similar for so many of us. We carefully put in all the generals and we leave the king to last with the hope that someday we may still get the king into the center of our lives, into the center of our picture. But the artist died before he had a chance to finish the picture. Church, is Jesus Christ, is he the focus, is he the center of your life right now? Is he dwelling? Is he taking up permanent residence in your life, reigning over every aspect of your life right now? Or are you like the artist, focusing on the generals, focusing on your own lust, on your own pride, on your own worldly desires? And if that is the case, is it any wonder why people struggle to love each other? Church, we can only be, verse 17, rooted and grounded in love if Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts. So Paul continue, continues here to build on his prayer that our inner being be strengthened, that Christ may dwell in us. And here in verse 18 and 19, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that they may have the strength 
as a Christian body with all the saints to know and to learn just how much Christ loves them. That they begin to know the unsearchable riches and the unsearchable love of Jesus Christ. Or as verse 18 says, the never-ending breadth of it, the never-ending length of it, the never-ending height of it, and the never-ending depth of it. As F.F. F. Bruce pointed out, as much as one comes to know the love of Christ, there is always more to know. Church, as a child, I knew my parents loved me. They would read me stories, they would take care of me when I was sick, they would celebrate my birthday with me, giving me cake and presents. I knew that they loved me. But as I matured and became a young adult, I began to realize and fathom that they really loved me. They would drive me all over the country for soccer tournaments. They would comfort me when my face was covered in acne. Again, the more mature I got, the more I understood the depth of their love. And now as an adult who has three children of his own, I see even more clearly the sacrifices that they made for me. I see even more clearly the investments they made into me and not into their hobbies, not into their finances. And I see the love and the grace they gave me when I was bad, when I was hard to love. I understand now, I comprehend, I appreciate, I am thankful now more than ever the love my parents had for me. I have grown in my understanding of this. Thus, Christian, in the same way, grow in your understanding, grow in your maturity and knowing how much Jesus Christ loves you. Hebrews 6.1 says we must leave, meaning we must move past the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, I want to make this point very clear. What's not being promoted here? is just to go read some big theological books on Jesus Christ and his love, on his substitutionary atonement, on his humility in taking on flesh. Learn some big theological words, go to a coffee shop and impress your friends with them. He is not saying this because this type of love, the unfathomable riches of the love of Jesus Christ, verse 19 says, it surpasses knowledge. This type of love, it surpasses knowledge. And this is not a contradiction from Paul. Even though he prays we may comprehend the love of Christ, but then he says that the love of Christ, it surpasses comprehension. Remember what F.F. F. Bruce said, as much as one comes to know the love of Christ, there is always more to know. We can never reach the bottom depth of the pool of Christ's love for us. It is simply too vast. It is simply too deep. But the more we meditate, 
The more we think, the more we pray on the scriptures, the deeper we understand and we can fathom Jesus Christ and his love for us. By this we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16 And that he was delivered over to death for our trespasses and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 4.25 And love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.10 So we can see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children Children of God, and so we are. 1 John 3 1. Church, we were introduced to this type of love. It was foreign to us before Christ loved us as his children in this way. Oh, that we learn to treasure it and to recognize it and to grasp it and experience it each and every day. So, and here is the climax of what Paul is building toward in his prayer of petitions for the saints here in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And what Christian wouldn't desire that? To have our inner beings be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that Christ can dwell in our hearts and reign over every aspect of our lives and we can grow in comprehending and appreciating Christ's love for us so we can be filled to the brim of our human capacity with godliness, with his power, his holiness, his love, his wisdom, and his character. What a bold and courageous prayer here for the saints from Paul. That as the redeemed, growing in Christ's likeness, that the fullness of God then can just come pouring out of us in the way we sacrifice for each other, in the way we love each other, in the way we invest in each other, and evangelize, and meditate, and disciple with each other. In everything we do, the goodness of God will naturally then just come pouring out of us. Oh, Father, help us, empower us to grow every day in you until your spirit is eternal, our spirit is eternally glorified by you in every way. Let our lives beam with all the fullness of God in Christ in all that we do so that our lives cry out to God be the glory. As we close this morning, I will begin with the non-Christian who is here. Power and love. These are two qualities our world desires now more than ever. We see every day on TV the fight to let love win. If we just let everyone love whoever and however they would like, then the world would be a better place. That is what the media is telling us. Or power. If these people have power and not these people, then the world would be a better place. But here's the deal. The love and the power discussed today, a love and a power that offers peace through eternity. It is not naturally found in you. It is an alien love. It is an alien power offered only in and through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our natural disposition, non-Christian, is that of sin. We, as human beings brought into this world, we cannot 
not sin. It is our natural disposition and sin, it has separated us from God. Thus our need for a Savior. So God had sent his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus Christ, who was truly God and truly man. And he lived the life that we never could. He lived a life without sin. He was perfectly obedient to the law, even though he was tempted with sin, just like you or I. And in order to carry out God the Father, his perfect plan of salvation for his children, Jesus Christ, he bore the sins of his children on a cross. He took the place of his children. He was a substitute in place of his children. And the wrath that we deserve for our sins, Jesus Christ, he was crucified on a cross, crushed on a cross for our sins as a perfect, sinless sacrifice. And his work on the cross, his crucifixion, as a perfect, sinless sacrifice, it appeased the holy wrath of God toward his children. But Jesus Christ, he was not done. Three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead. He defeated sin and defeated death through eternity. Death and sin, it had no claim over him. And it can have no claim over you, non-Christian, if you believe, if you trust in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sins, you repent of your sins, and you trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sins, the only one who paid the price for your sins, the only one who died for your sins, and who can clothe you in his perfect righteousness and reconcile you back to God through eternity. Let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sins, and you trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the only one who can forgive you of your sins and reconcile you back to God. And you can leave here today experiencing a love, an eternal love like never before because non-Christian, God loved you first. Thus trust in his love, trust in his power, trust in his work on the cross. And today will be the day that through faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And to the Christian that is here today, in verses 16 and 17, Paul prays for his readers that God may grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. If you remember, that word dwell means a permanent residence. Not a short stay, not an Airbnb visit, but a permanent stay. And I don't know about you, but if I am going to live somewhere permanently, if I'm going to work somewhere permanently, then I am going to make it my own. Church, that is exactly what Christ wants to do. Thus, I will ask the question that Walter Wink asked. Brother Christian, Sister Christian, who owns your house? Is it your lust or is it Jesus Christ? 
in Robert Munger's My Heart is Christ's Home. He describes the work of Christ in the Christian home, in the Christian life, this way. He says that first Christ will go into the study or the library. He goes into your mind and he cleans out the trash and the literature that Christians had no business of reading in the first place. Then Christ will go into the dining room, the room of worldly appetites and desires, and remove the lustful flesh for money and for academic degrees and stocks and newspaper articles and fame and fortune and replace them with the will of God. And then Christ, he will visit the rec room or the place where only certain associates and friendships, activities and amusements take place. It is a room we often want to keep to ourselves. And Christ removes these guilty pleasures of ours and instead replaces them with eternal joy and eternal happiness, eternal satisfaction, eternal friends, and new eternal excitements. And finally, Christ will visit the hall closet, where he smells a peculiar odor as if something was dead. This is where the Christian hides the dead rotting things from his old way of life. Thus, this is where Christ opens the closet, cleanses it, and gives us victory over it. That is the work of Christ in the house of the Christian, or in the life of the Christian. In John 14, 23, it says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Christian, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test. Church, who runs your life? Who runs your house? What does it look like? What is it full of? What comes pouring out of it? Does it look like Jesus Christ, like Christ has transformed your house, that he has cleansed your house, that he has made it new? Or does it look like the world, like the world's festering in it, giving off a peculiar odor rotting inside of it? Jesus said these words, If anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The Christian life is a life of dying to self. Dying to our own desires, dying to our own lust, our own evil thoughts and motives, and forsaking the ways of the world and laying them down at the foot of the cross. And letting Christ, who dwells in you, let him rule over and transform your thoughts, your motives, and desires. Let him make your will into his will. Let him mold your life to look like his life and not like the world. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body receive your power, Lord. Just as Paul prayed for the Ephesians readers to receive strength, Lord, strengthen us, I pray. Strengthen our inner being. Ground us in love and take over our hearts. Let our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our desires look like you, Jesus Christ. Take away and clean up any messy or worldly rooms in our lives and let us willingly cast aside those sinful and worldly deeds, knowing that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us, we are his, we are his people. And if we are struggling with this this morning, Lord, help us. 
Give us the strength to comprehend the amazing breadth and length and height and depth of your love. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Help us to know and experience this love, Lord, that surpasses all knowledge. And out of it, let us be filled with your fullness, God, knowing that our justification, our sanctification, and our eventual glorification, they are riches from your glory. They are all from your fullness. They are grace upon grace. Help us, Lord, to walk in your grace in all that we do. Oh, to God be the glory for his omnipotent work in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are in awe of the work and the power that you have displayed in our lives. Lord, you have chosen us, predestined us, adopted us, forgiven us, redeemed us, united us, and have given us an eternal inheritance through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we cannot fathom how good of a God you are. Lord, continue to dwell inside of us. Make our lives and our houses look more like you every day. Let our houses look vastly different from the world. And let the light of our house shine during this time. All that we say, all that we think, all that we do, showcase that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is sovereign and he will come again for his church. In Jesus' name, amen. Our benediction this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It reads, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Go in peace, church.